Hello, everyone. It's another edition of the TetraCast. I have just woken up from about 11 hours of sleep, so I have a fair bit of energy and ready to talk about RPGs and games like we always do. So I am Brian Vitali, and joining me today are George Foster. Hello, everyone. We've got Adam Vitali. Hello. And James Galizio. Hey, folks. So October is wrapping down. We're in very much in the center of spooky season right now. We're only, you know, a few days away from the November deluge of everything <laughs> coming out at once. <laughs> so the calm before the storm, as cliche as that is, there is a nugget of truth to it. Uh, speaking of calm before the storm, I really have not played much this week. I've just been tied up with other life things and just kind of uh, been been very busy with things outside of games. So for this initial section, I get to kind of punt because I just really haven't covered much. I've kind of just been waiting for a new game to release, even though I have some other games in my backlog that I just didn't want to. I didn't want to start and then like have to pause them and then never get back to them. I'd rather just not start and do them later. Uh, so let's just move over to um, Adam. I know you've also had some life things going on, but have you played anything else uh, leading up to today from the last week? I think this is the same thing that I mentioned last week, but um, I last week I mentioned that I just basically played a little bit of Wasteland 3, and this week I finished Wasteland 3, and that's oh, pretty much it. That checks out. Yeah. Uh, I, I probably mentioned something like this last week, I honestly don't remember, but it's interesting in a way where, like, this game... It's set in a world that is just, like, full of terrible people and it's just like there's there's lawless lawlessness everywhere and you know there's like it's very hard in this game to play as like a good person just because uh of how the world is set up it's sort of like everyone for themselves sort of thing and you actually put it really well in your review where when it comes to like the decision making and like the faction reputation building and things like that in this game it's not so much like these people are the good people and these people are the bad people. Um, it's more just acceptable losses and concessions in terms of like, if I do this, these people will be better off, but these people will suffer. And the people that you're either supporting or against, none of them are like angels. So you kind of have to just decide based on like your own values or just like maybe some outcome you're trying to get that you think might be like, some good compromise of factions or ideals or choices you make it, it yeah, makes things actually kind of interesting games with factions like it's 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 kind of a low bar to say like no true no faction is truly good or truly bad but i think wasteland does go a step further like one of the earliest interactions that actually kind of gave me pause was you're in you're in uh the main the the game is centered in colorado springs in that in the surrounding area and one of the factions there is called the 100 families. They're basically kind of like the elite of Colorado Springs. And they say one of, one of them, the quest is basically, hey, there's a lot of refugees trying to get into the city. But if you like that sounds like, oh, I want to be a good person. I want to help the refugees. But they, they really kind of hammer home. Like if you let these people into the city, we will not have enough food to feed all of them. Like you are not doing them any favors. Uh, and you don't know if they're lying. You don't know if they're telling the truth. Like, am I actually helping if I go this route? Is it a good idea to get these people on my bad side because they have the power here? How do you play as a good person there? And that one's even a little bit more clear cut. It kind of just gets more muddy and muddy and muddy as you go on. And eventually you just kind of have to... Um, you have to make a you have to make a goal oriented decision where it's like I want to do this, 
and the ends justify not terrible means, but means where you, where you don't end up helping everyone because you can't. Um, and Wasteland 3 also is one of the games, rarely, where I actually had some possible companions. And I'm like, I actually, I don't want this person on my team. I do, I do not want to team up with this person. Normally, if I'm playing a game, like a Bioware game, and there's a like a, a character who's not a great person, you just kind of like recruit them anyway, because you get everyone, right? But this is one of the few times where it's like, you know what, I'm just going to turn this person away because I have no interest in in hearing what they have to say because they're an awful person. And maybe that's a bit silly, but Wasteland 3 presents itself in a way where that feels kind of natural, which I think is kind of an achievement. Yeah, and you mentioned this as well, and it's sort of like a key component to the game, so this isn't really a spoiler, but a lot of it does center on this character of the Patriarch, who is basically like, um, he's, he's a semi-dictator, ends before the means, sort of, sort of ruler in a way, um, or, you know, a person in charge of this Colorado Springs area. And he has been successful in basically creating this city. It's basically or a like country. super city, yeah. right? Uh, that's basically well off. People are prosperous and having good lives there. And he's trying to make it as good as it can be for some people. But in order to get to that state, he's had to do some underhanded things to like other people elsewhere. And one, um, one like example the of planes. that is, yeah, so the planes oh. bandits or whatever they're called, um, they basically said, like, we want to invade your city. And he's like, don't you dare. However, these are those people I'm deliberately excluding from my walls. I'm not going to protect them. You know, have your fun. And you're like, Jesus. <laughs> but he does that. But he does that. And it's awful. But it's you can kind of sort of see, like, well, if the alternative is putting up a defensive front against someone you're not sure you can actually defend against, is that the decision right or wrong? And it's it's not clear cut. And eventually you have to basically determine what you want to do with like the patriarch and like the rule of the city. And like one of your options is, is like you can't abide by his underhanded methods and you basically get rid of him, but you have no plan in place to like, how are you going to maintain stability without what he's done? And there, it's not like, like, oh yeah, sure. We can, we can, we can squash his regime, but what's going to come up after that? It's just going to be everyone. And it's just going to be anarchy then. And it's just like no obvious like good answer in terms of what's the best, what's the good ending and what's the bad ending. It's just there's like also, you have there's to also decide. There's also the personal stake where the premise of the game is that if you help him, he will send supplies back to your, your people's hometown in Arizona. So it's like, well, if you decide that he needs to be, you know, usurped, you're basically saying, I give this up. Like I will, the people back home will not get any help. <laughs> so again, just, just another wrinkle where it's like, what's your goal? If your goal is purely to help the people back home, then it seems like the decision has to be to, to, to support this guy, even though he's terrible in many ways. But then you then you can kind of say like, well, I'm going to usurp him and then everyone else just come here and I'll protect you. It's like, well, how can you be certain of that? Because the Raiders aren't going to, you know, value your rule. They're not going to respect what you've done. So is that really the best and option? So even if, even if you do kind of decide, and this is sort of the path I went, like even if you do sort of decide to like prioritize I want to help the people back home sort of with the, the logic being like my problem is my people back home. Colorado's problem is someone else's problem. And I just got to have to, I just got to have to, uh, you know, take advantage of what I can here. Even then there's sort of like a splinter in your ranger faction back home in terms of like you, in terms of if you're being selfish in a way, 
Like yeah. are Rangers meant to only be like supporting themselves or are they meant to be like a broader force for quote good? And so like, even if you make that decision, you're basically factoring, you're splintering your own faction in a way. It's, right. So it, 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 I think it does a really good job. It's, I don't think the writing in the game is like itself fantastic, but in terms of just like making a set of decisions that are like, you know, you have to each person's priorities in terms of like what they would do decisions rather than like, do you want to be good or want to be bad? Or do you want to help person A or person B? Right. And it's a little bit more than just, yeah, I was actually just about to mention it's you're, you're affecting more than just like one group of people. You're affecting like multiple groups of people that will like, depending on your, depending on your decision, some groups will be better off, but some groups will be worse off kind of in basically any decision you pick. So it's, I think it does a good job at that. Even this, it's sort of works with the sort of wasteland tone in a way where it's just like, there is no perfect outcome. There one, this is kind of particular and this will be like, kind of, I think my last comment on the game since we brought it up a few podcasts in a row, but it, they seem to really like the idea of cannibalism. It shows up in the game like four <laughs> times and at, by the time you get like this, like, so like you, you first, you, you do a side quest where one of the characters resorts to cannibalism. Then you meet a faction of people who are cannibals. And then you meet another faction of people who aren't necessarily cannibals, but they like cut up bodies and fly them on kites. And you're just like, oh, okay. It's like a similar thread. Like, and it just seems like, all right, I get it. People here, like they're, there's got to be more interesting ways to paint people as awful people rather than just say, yeah, how should we, how should we designate these people as bad? I know cannibals. <laughs> it's just like, okay, <laughs> uh, come up with something else. I feel like they could have tweaked that in some way and made it a little bit more interesting. When, when I, by the end of the game, I was just like, I'm okay. I get it. I get it. Desensitized <laughs> to cannibals. Right. Like, like, okay. That's, that's one way that you can present people as being bad people, I suppose. Give me another. Do you have... Do well, you have like I guess the only other group are, are like the Scar Collectors, which are basically like slavers. So yeah, they're, that's, that's, they're okay. Yeah. But, you know, there's... It's actually kind of interesting. Like, just as an example, this might be the last example I'll give. There's a character who's a pretty important character in terms of, uh, like, one of the factions that you can... that you interact with. And... He's opposed to the patriarch, but he's a slaver. Um, so he's not like a good person, but he actually does. Um, if your goal is to usurp the patriarch because his means are just too extreme. His, his, yeah, too extreme. It's like one of your options is to work with this other guy who basically has allows you a much higher capability to do that, but his methods are you know he's not he's definitely not a good person on his own so it's just kind of like well do you make that truce or Compromise, not yeah and i actually ended up killing that guy but then that actually makes like this later game section where you're working with the scar collectors kind of weird because it's just like you can't do anything with them it's because you killed their leader so it's kind of like you just basically knocked off a bunch of options just by knocking that guy out and so okay I don't know if I would say Wasteland 3 is a great game, but it is a good game and it is a very interesting game. It's, yeah, as you can maybe just hope, hopefully glean from this discussion here. So it'll be a, it'll be interesting to see where it falls. Uh, 
in terms of the end of the year stuff because there are some there are several RPGs this year that have clearly I think presented themselves more strongly and are just better games, but they're also a little bit safer. So a very interesting one. I think it's worth playing. It's not that long. Uh, if you have any interest in Western RPGs at all, I think it's worth a shot. Did you have anything else, Adam, or was that kind of it for the week? No, that's kind of it. All right. So, George, you have uh, you missed last week and, and maybe the week before. I forget if it's been two or three, but uh, I know you've been doing a little bit of stuff with the Kingdom Hearts Melody of Memory, uh, at least the demo. I don't know if yes. you've also touched on anything else. Uh, what have you been uh, playing? Uh, so I think I'm in a sort of similar position to you guys where knowing that November is just going to be flat out with Cyberpunk and Kingdom Hearts and yeah, just sure. the whole PS5 thing. Like, I, I can't really focus that much. Like, it took something like the Melody of Memory demo to kind of keep my attention. Uh, so I played quite a lot of that and I played a little bit of Kirby Fighters 2, which I will briefly touch on, but because I didn't get to say about Melody of Memory, I'll. I'll save it now. Um, yeah, so my game of the year is decided. What about you guys? <laughs> Based like, on the demo alone? Yes. No, well, I, I'm being facetious, but... Are I you? So... <laughs> well, okay, you, you've caught me. But it, all of my worries about it have gone. Um, not that I was, was really worried, but just when I was sat in that chair... Well, I, I'm pointing at my chair. You guys can't see it, but <laughs> I was sat in it. Um, and I did... Uh, the I think it's called a rustling forest. One of the songs from Birth by Sleep, which isn't even one of my favorite Kingdom Hearts games, but I sat there playing that, and there's just a moment where like the music just kicked in properly, and like I was doing it properly to the beat, and I was like, oh my god, this is so cool. And I was like, okay, this is five songs, right? And they're supposed to be 140 plus. Like this is just going to be amazing. This is just going to be like the perfect little Kingdom Hearts fan treat. And it just plays so well. The music is like undeniably some of the best in in a game series. I'd say, uh, obviously, that's that's from my opinion. But like, I, I love the Kingdom Hearts music. I think that's sort of like unanimous that people in, enjoy the music of Kingdom Hearts. Yeah, I, I think it's a very common opinion. People enjoy it, yeah. and even if even if they're even if obviously not everyone enjoys it to the same extent, it's very distinct. I think everyone mm. can hear a track and say like that's that's Kingdom Hearts, or yeah, just because obviously Shimamura and the um. The other composers like uh, Sakito and some of the others that work on three. Does it have three music on it? Yeah, it, well, this, this is, yeah. This too. is my sort of concern. I'm, I'm going to get into the concerns in a sec, just because if the full game has a really good selection of music, which I think it should do, like as long as there's not uh, too many missing tracks from like later games, and if it has a lot of cool collectibles stuff like that, which I gameplay trailers have shown us that it does then my god am i excited but there are two standing issues that i have so far or not even issues concerns um one is i don't know how much of the third game is going to be implemented uh just because each of the tracks in the game what they do is they then take you like on a guided tour, like just as background noise and the enemies are all from that world. So like the background and the enemies represent that world. So like in the Alice in Wonderland one, you're fighting enemies, the heartless from that area. And like, you can see Wonderland as you go along the track. Uh, and because it's all in like the Kingdom Hearts one, two and birth by sleep graphic style, like you, you know what I mean? Like it's Kingdom Hearts one Sora's model. 
I don't know how they're going to implement stuff from the third game. That's a good uh, question. I didn't think about that. Yeah, like so far, all we've seen is like they do like a music video sort of style. There's a specific name for those tracks. Uh, I think they're called Memory Dives, and that's a that's a cool idea. But like some the music in the third one is like some of the best, uh, and it kind of worries me that it's either just going to be like be really out of place, or if it's going to be FMVs, and like in that case, that's fine for like the PS4, which will probably like display it pretty well. But like on the Switch, is that going to look really weird? It's just like, a video file. I think it could play it just fine, but it, it, it is. You do have to wonder like how it would end up looking. Mm. Like so, so far the game looks great. I, I was a little bit annoyed. At, oh, what did, what did you preview. play it on? Did you play it on PS4? The demo? Yeah, PS4. Oh. I've now played it on Switch as well. Uh, the, there's like minimal difference, right. which is good. Um, and the second worry is kind of a stupid one, I guess, but I'm a little bit worried that there's going to be maybe one significant cutscene and then that's it. Like everyone's saying this, like, yeah, that's probably going to be the case or like, it's just going to be a bit of background detail and that's fine, I guess, but they could do so much to show Kyrie as like a more important character than we've seen her before. And like to have her be the star of this game and then not use her at all would be kind of sucky like as far well, as I'm I, already, aware, I already saw like, some people kind of be a little bit dismissive like oh Kyrie gets her own game and it's a rhythm game like of course that's what she's relegated to yeah. where like until they show us otherwise you kind of see like where that sort of opinion comes from you're like yeah that is kind of like why can't she get a birth by sleep scale game or even yeah. like a, a 365 days or 358 game, whatever how many days it is <laughs> <laughs> but like uh, I've only just realized saying that like She's not even playable. Like she she, she narrates, game, right? Like, is that how it is? Kind of. I I I don't know, but like I know she's not a member of any of the that it's like it's sort of like Sonic Heroes. They have like team set up, so it's like uh, Team Classic, which is Sora, Donald, Goofy, then Team uh, Birth by Sleep, which is uh, Aqua Terra and Ventus. But like Kyrie's not a part of any of those. Like I don't even know if she's playable at all. So it, it's just it's sort of worrying that people are going to have even more ammunition that she's useless or like people are going to be going in expecting big teases for the next game and it's just gonna be like a tease about who the master of masters is and as i say chances that nomura like pulls out the rug and there's like an rpg behind the rhythm game i would love that i don't think it's a very high chance at all it's like a couple percent but i also like would not rule it out the the reason the thing that really stops that from happening and i hate to say it is that it's on the switch yeah like, if this if this was like a current gen game only then i could totally see it at the end you're like you're doing the last song and then suddenly it's like oh you're controlling Kyrie and you're fighting the master of masters like how cool is this but that that couldn't that can't happen on the switch because well i don't think kingdom hearts 3 could run on the switch really so i'm, I'm just a little bit like maybe selfishly concerned that it's just not going to give me what i want but then, even if that's the case, I think I can just accept it as a nice little fan package. Uh, probably the most reliable way to get the music, because God knows that's really like scattered everywhere um, until this OST comes out. But it seems yeah. like a dumb question, but and I I already know the answer. But would you play a spinoff? And I'm saying that with air quotes because what are spinoffs in this series? Would you play <laughs> a spinoff? starring Kyrie with like let's say Lee and Riku as like the party members like a 20 hour RPG kind of bridging the gap between 
uh, Kingdom Hearts 3 and its DLC and whatever is next. Brian, I would cry for that. <laughs> I, there, there is no part of me that wouldn't play that. I I say this in my preview as well. I would I would play anything Kingdom Hearts as it is, but a game starring Kyrie, even just Kyrie on her own, is the logical next step from Melody of Memory, I think. I, I said this last time we talked about Melody of Memory, but if you cast your mind back to a couple of months ago, they did the whole uh, Kingdom Hearts in 2020 teaser video, and then at the start of that video, they've got like a timeline planned out, and that goes up to Melody of Memory, and it's got two blank spaces uh, like for the future Kingdom Hearts games. One of those is probably Kingdom Hearts 4, um, which is crazy to say out loud. I, I don't want to start thinking about Kingdom Hearts 4 just yet. Uh, and the other is probably like a, a 0.2 birth by sleep sort of game, like a five, six hour game with Kyrie as the lead. That's my guess. That's what I hope. I actually forgot about was. that tease, that it had two kind of earmarked slots. Just mm. think about well, I, I didn't forget that that's all I think about every day. <laughs> but <laughs> you've got it on so your wall. <laughs> yeah, it's my phone background. <laughs> um but yeah, super excited. Super, super excited. And I'm glad that like everyone else is able to play it now because uh I, I had a week early access to it and I was just going nuts. Like I, I couldn't wait to see how people reacted to it. And it's all good. And everyone else is better at it than me. Everyone else is getting like perfect scores on the hardest difficulty while I'm sort of struggling <laughs> so yeah that you're gonna you're gonna hear me rant about that quite a lot in the coming weeks i think yep and that releases in like two weeks right i mean i can't oh, check that can't wait yeah it's the 13th so yeah oh, and then mm-hmm. only a quick one on this but i played kirby fighters 2 as well over the weekend i just finished it today um and that's a that's a fun little time but what surprised me most about it is it's actually like got some roguelike elements to it or roguelite however you say it but when you're basically the premise of the game is that you you play as like a copy version one one of kirby's copies like you have one of his abilities uh and you use that to advance up a tower and each level is a different enemy that you fight um and then every time you go up a level you get like the choice of like a an item so you can choose to like get better health or you can do get like better damage or uh auto guard stuff like that and like at first i was sort of like okay this is you know kind of pointless i'm always going to go with increasing my health but then as i got further and further into it i was like actually this is really cool like there's not a lot of options there's not like too much variety but like there's enough that you actually do find yourself thinking about it um and yeah that just that just came out of nowhere and surprised me that uh something kind of Nintendo just kind of said, "Oh yeah, this is out now," and then never talked about it again. Is actually kind of fun, and actually has like it's probably the best Kirby spinoff, and no one seems to be talking about it. Um, I'm not even well, a massive Kirby fan. George. I'm, I'm just gonna say it, it mm. can't be the best Kirby spinoff because that's Air Ride. Oh yes. Uh if they if they remade Air Ride, I'd be very happy. I do feel okay. like Nintendo does kind of have this. I don't want to say they're overusing Kirby, but if you like looked at like all the Kirby releases in the last ten years, there are so many, and a lot of them are kind of like shadow drops or like downloadable kind of like uh, little smaller self-contained interesting ideas like compacted into games. Go that um, Kirby isn't actually Nintendo; it's how Laboratory. Well, how oh, right? So. Yeah. But um, it it just seems like it's kind of a useful kind of IP for them to have if they have this like an interesting little simple game idea. They're like, let's let's frame this as a Kirby yeah. game and just kind of 
present it like that. Which they, which they certainly do, because there's been like, off the top of my head, I can think of six right now that are just like random eShop releases, and the none of them have really stuck with me before. Like, I, I downloaded Kirby Clash, and I was like, okay, this I played that for like half an hour, and I was like, okay, cool. Like, that doesn't do much for me, but Kirby Fighters Two is actually really cool. Um, it's a bit. So since <laughs> since 2014, there have been. Uh... Let's see, 11? Now, some of those you kind of don't count, like Kirby's Extra Epic Yarn. Maybe like, <laughs> I don't actually count that, because that was actually an earlier Wii game. But like Robotobot, or whatever that's called, in 2016. Kirby Clash last year. Fighters 2 this year. Blowout Blast from 2017. I mean, I just have a list up, and I'm like, man, that's a lot of Kirby <laughs> titles. I don't even know what some of these are, or most of these are. But I, I think well, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. It's just kind of like, here's an interesting game. It's framed as a Kirby game. Usually it's kind of a a smaller, more self-contained title. Just kind of a just kind of an idea package as a Kirby game. Here you go, have fun. Yeah, and I'd, I'd say Fighters Two is definitely that. the The most interesting thing about it, sadly, isn't even like about the game. But when when it released, people data mined it and they found evidence of like a new, like fully three D Kirby game. Like only like basic data for it. And some some people are like, oh, maybe it's more it's like leftover from blowout blast which was a sort of 3d spin-off game uh but like the general consensus is something big is going for kirby and it might be 3d and that's really cool yeah you always have to be careful with data mines because you don't know like is this stuff that was just like testing that they ended up that yeah. not have any intention of using or is it really leaning towards something you always have to just have that in mind i've seen some people treat data mines as like legit this is a leaked announcement it's going yeah. to happen as it's presented in the data it's like eh. No, maybe not. Maybe yes, but maybe not. <laughs> while while we wait for a proper Kirby, though, give Kirby Fights Two a go if you're a, if you're a fan of Kirby. It's good fun. And that leaves uh, James. So last week, I believe you talked mostly about Thirteen Sentinels. I don't know if you have any like concluding thoughts on that, or if you had uh, other stuff that you had gone into. Uh, I'll just say that Thirteen Sentinels is a game that everyone should play, and uh, it's pretty clear at this point that it's going to be a front runner in our game of the year discussions. So, if you're at all a fan of visual novel type deals, if you if you're at all a fan of Vanillaware, or even if you just own a PlayStation Four and you're looking for a new game to play that's like sci-fi or anything, uh, definitely play it. It's a fantastic game, um, fantastic story, uh, definitely. Um, Highly recommended. Yeah, so Josh has kind of been carrying the... Sorry, not Josh. James has been carrying the torch. I wanted to bring up Josh later. That's why his name was in my head. James has kind of been carrying the torch for 13 Sentinels uh, on the podcast with a cameo appearance by Josh. But we have other people on the site like Cullen and, and Chow who also think highly of the game. So once we get into Game of the Year, RPG of the Year deliberations, I can easily see... It's kind of like a shoe in top five, or unless something really surprising happens. But I can't. I have a hard time not envisioning that right now, and it's going to be up there. We'll see where it ends up landing. I think you also yep. had put in some time into the uh, just recently released new Pokemon DLC. Yeah. So my opinions on the base game for Pokemon Sword and Shield aren't new. Um, Honestly, at this point, I'm wondering if I'm starting to get a reputation for being harsh on games. But, um, <laughs> More on that later. But uh, 
if anyone's read my impressions of Isle of Armor, the first half of the Sword and Shield expansion pass, then you'll know that I actually was pleasantly surprised with how that turned out, and it left me actually a bit excited to see what would happen with the second half of the expansion pass. So just as a little refresher, the main reasons why I liked Isle of Armor was because the wild area that was the majority of that expansion's world was much better implemented, I felt like, than the wild area in the base game. There was actually some exploration that you could do. It didn't feel like a, just a shallow open plane. There were actual like cave networks. There were things that you could explore, like even if it was just like a silly thing, like there's a bunch of Alolan Diglets, and if you can find them all, you'll get um, Alolan form Pokemon from this one dude which was still a, a neat reason to actually explore it. And I felt like the overall like world design of the DLCs area was a lot better than the base games. Um, not to mention, brought some new po well, old Pokemon back. It um, had a, a cute little story, nothing really major. But it was, I felt like, and I hoped like, a nice little appetizer for the rest of the DLC with this, um, with this uh, half of the expansion pass. And uh, so far, that's what it feel, feels like. It seems like that um, Crown Tundra was exactly what I was hoping for. Because uh, Isle of Armor was already a step up, but from the get-go, Pokemon Company and Game Freak and whatnot always said that Crown Tundra was going to be focused on exploration, and it definitely was kind of billed as the more hardcore of the two DLCs. Um, and so Crown Tundra adds a bunch of new legendary Pokemon back in and also adds some like new Galarian forms for like the uh, bird trio from Generation 1. So you got like Galarian, Moltres, Zapdos, Articuno. And it's really interesting how not only is there like a neat little story with the uh, DLC's main attraction, um, Cataracts, I think it's pronounced like the new legendary Pokemon. Like there's like a whole like story arc to trying to uh solve its issues and then eventually capture it but every legendary pokemon in the dlc has a different way of encountering it kind of following up on the idea of like the alolan diglet in isle of armor like each of the main areas in the expansion's new wild area sometimes have like these tracks and that once you get enough tracks to get an investigation up to 100%, you can, um, um, one of the, uh, one of the, I think it's like Musketeer Trio or something, whatever it's called from Generation 5, will show up in that area and you can like run into it and capture it. And then like, there's like a little secret for if you get all of them. And then dotted around the uh, um, wild area are these ruins where you have to solve a little puzzle to get into them and then there's one of the reggies or um from like generation three and then there's like two new ones now and then if you catch all of them there's a, a secret where you can get reggie gigas and the galarian form of the bird pokemon you're like the roamer legendaries from the previous games except each of them goes to one of the three wild areas and you have to do something to actually even like confront them. Like Glorian Zapdos just runs really fast. So you have to get on your bike and like kind of try and catch up to it. 
Gorian Articuno kind of makes an illusion and you have to figure out which one is the real one. All right, that's cool, what you're describing right now. Uh, Gorian Moltres, you kind of have to cut it off as it's running around in order to to, uh, um, fight it. And what was really interesting to me is that it's kind of been a bit of a uh, trend in Pokemon over the last couple of generations that the capture rates for most legendaries is actually a lot easier than it was in previous games. That's no longer the case here. Like, I opened up the ruins for Regirock, and I was like, okay, this shouldn't be that bad, because, like, legendaries are easy to capture now. No. I got him down to, like, less than 5% HP, and I was throwing a bunch of, like, dust balls at him, and it's like I threw, like, 40 before he finally got caught, and it's like, man... It really does feel like it's 2003. I was going to say, that's the, that's the classic Pokemon experience. Yeah. And obviously some people will be annoyed by that. And that, that's understandable. But coming from my standpoint as a Blast fan and like the nostalgia of like Generation 3 and 4 and whatnot, I really liked it. And I really like how like unique um, the methods are for catching all the legendary Pokemon added back into this. I like how... Um, another thing, like I mentioned kind of my Isle of Armor impressions that I felt like the kind of cutscenes showcasing some of the uh, new characters and Pokemon are a lot better than anything in the base game. And I definitely feel the same here. Like when you first are introduced to the Glorian, like a uh, Canto Bird uh, trio, there's like a really neat little like animation of them fighting each other before like your Rotom phone rings and then like, the player character's like, oh, crap, and it's like trying to grab it, like, <laughs> frantically. And then they grab it, they look, and then, like, they just, all the birds just, like, fl- like flee. It's, like, really cute. And then, um, yeah, overall, I'm really happy with it. Uh, definitely not done with it yet, but in the next couple of days, I'm probably going to write up my impression, my overall impression, and I guess more like a review for the um, expansion pass as a whole. Needless to say, I feel like I'm still not sure how I feel about the fact that this was 30 bucks when not only was the Sword and Shield kind of lacking on post-game content, in my view, but it was already like 20 bucks more than people are used to paying for the 3DS games. So it does sting that, yeah, it, it seems like Sword and Shield's in a really good spot now once you get both DLCs, but that's not so even I, all. I have not... Yeah, I haven't played Sword and Shield, so I'm kind of having to glean my, you know, impressions vicariously through other people. But uh, I have seen in other places that both halves of the expansion pass have been received pretty positively. Now, you always have to have in the back of your mind, is that just because the people who have were completely turned off by the base game might not be in population going into the even trying the uh, expansion pass content? But I do think that a good chunk of it is that the developers had another year to work on it. They they knew what the weaknesses of the base game were and had time to just develop the maybe in a lot of ways, the, the ways you're describing it, it's like, here's the end game that the original game didn't have. Here's yeah, like, yeah. here's like, here's the post game content, the max level content, the after you beat the elite four content or whatever the equivalent. Yeah, I didn't is. even go over what's possibly the coolest new feature in this DLC. So max raid battles in the base game were an interesting distraction, I'd say, but it definitely felt like it got to the point where they were too 
wrote. They were too, like they. It felt like the same thing every time. There is a new variant of it called Max Raid Adventures now, where there's a spot in the new wild area where you can enter a cave and there's like a facility. You rent out a Pokemon, kind of like the old like um, Battle Frontier facilities and like Emerald or Platinum or whatnot, and you can either go solo or online into a Max Raid Adventure. And since you're renting a Pokemon, you're limited in what you can bring to what's offered to you. And then you're doing a series of Max Raid battles, and after each battle, you can either choose to keep the Pokemon that you captured and swap it out with the one that you were previously using, or keep going on. And then, like, as you're going through it, there's, like, split um, branching paths, and it shows you, like, what the um, main um, typing is for the Pokemon on I- on each path. And you can kind of see, like, any bonuses waiting for you, whether it's, like, various, like, restore health or, like, just random trainers which, like, give you a hold item to give to your Pokemon. And at the very end, there's like a legendary Pokemon almost always. And that there's like a bunch of legendary Pokemon that don't otherwise have like anything. Nothing like unlike the Reg, like the Reggie trio or the Musketeer trio or the Bird trio. There's a ton more legendary Pokemon in here, but some of them are just like a bunch of them are just locked behind these Max Raid adventures. But it's still interesting because it's a metagame. I have this Pokemon I rented, but maybe it's easier for me to go on this path because it'll be easier to get to the legendary Pokemon, but is the Pokemon that I have good for whatever element legendary is at the very end of the dungeon? Maybe I want to go on a path that's a bit harder for me so I can capture a Pokemon strong against the legendary and swap it out with the one that I currently am using. And that's... that's an interesting a, setup. Just the yeah. fact that, that it's probably easier for them to balance the encounters, the difficulty by giving you a set of rented Pokemon rather than just letting you bring in your like perfect IV, EV, super trained uh, sweeper or whatever. But yeah, so um, overall, very happy with the DLC. Um, so definitely keep an eye on the site because should in the next couple of days have a proper review up for the expansion pass. It sounds like it'll be a fair bit more positive than the base game. And then, of course, this leads into the discussion of this is the Pokemon release for the year. So what's next? I, we we know we're getting Pokemon Snap next year. Yeah. Uh, but based on how this seemingly turned out, again, not my own impression because I haven't played it, it makes me wonder if Pokemon just needs to move away from being an annual series and just kind of give each new region a time to, like, cook. Yeah, I agree to a certain extent, but I feel like if as a baseline, it definitely feels like this is what they're heading towards after both the DLCs making much better use of the wild area. If they get rid of standard routes entirely for whatever the next Pokemon game is, and that all the routes are just like wild area type deals, I would be totally okay with that. In fact, I would be perfectly like, I I like that just because the wild area in the base game, I wasn't super hot on, but both wild areas that they've done since with the DLCs have been way more interesting. Like, it's it's not even a contest. And it definitely feels like that's what they're going for. So, yeah, if, like, Generation, like, 9, or even, like, even the Gen 4 remakes, it's just, like, a bunch of routes that are more like the wild area, 
like even if there's other issues with the game, I think I'd be perfectly like I'd actually be excited to play them just because it is that sort of freshness I was hoping for with Sword and Shield that the base game just didn't really offer for me. So like not not the big open world MMO that everyone clamors for as if that would be like really easy to make, but some <laughs> sort of like wide linear zone based kind of here's a region of the yeah, world with even if it's still like linear, I feel like the way that the wild area is even just the way it feels to explore is just way better than the rest of the game. Man, this is the first time I've been like, should I grab Sword and Shield? <laughs> <laughs> you know, actually, it's funny with uh, Sword and Shield. I was really excited for it before it came out i was like yeah this is the pokemon this is the one that's gonna get me back on the series like i haven't had a handheld in years but like it doesn't matter now i've got a switch i can do this and then i played two hours of it and never touched it again i i really liked a lot what it did but i think i just have to accept i'm not a pokemon guy like kind of sad it's just wondering if this is kind of the stumbling block that they needed to reach their new like ambitions as a semi-console game console game like for this for the switch and whatever's following the switch so it'd be really interesting to see if this is like the stepping stone for something really great coming up next of course it's easy to just kind of like imagine something that doesn't exist yet so we'll have to see where they actually end up but i'm excited and i'm not a pokemon guy either so we'll see what ends up following sword and shield so as for this week on the site we've got uh two articles that i want to shout out one is for the new Neo 2 DLC, Darkness in the Capital. So Lucas, who reviewed the first DLC and the base game, returned to this one. And uh, obviously the review is up on the site for you to read. The, the one sentence summary is that the story is not great, but the fist weapons that they added are amazing. So if you're the sort of person that really likes to play these, sorry, Souls likes, and sorry. <laughs> uh, it sounds like the fists are really cool, unique uh you know, battle implementation for that style of game. And I have hovered over the Neo 2 purchase button a few times this week, but like I said, I just didn't have any time. Do it. Do it. Uh, I'm close. Do it. So uh, We need so more people to talk about it for the Game of the Year podcast. That's true. That Maybe that's my motivation, is that I don't want to let people down for the Game of the Year podcast. And if this game is deserving of a top five spot, I want to have played it so I can support it. Or, you know, push against it if I end up not liking it. So... Uh, look forward to that next week maybe um, I'll have to squeeze it in before November games and then the other article shout out is one that just went up yesterday pretty big review for the site uh, Trails of Cold Steel 4 which was written by James so yeah. James uh, take it away yeah. <laughs> so this was probably one of the hardest reviews I've ever have, had to have written uh, not just because of how I felt about the game as a whole. Like, even if I had enjoyed the game, it was going to be a tough review, just because, as I even said in my review, who is a Trails of Cold Steel 4 review even for? Because even ignoring that I feel like you shouldn't play it if you haven't played, like, Trails in the Sky and the Crossbell duology, and obviously um, Cold Steel 1 through 3, even if you had only played Cold Steel 1 through 3, that's a high barrier to entry and anyone that would be interested in cold steel 4 probably already knows that they're going to play it and so like even before i put 
started writing down my thoughts. I was struggling. I was trying to grapple with the fact that I didn't know necessarily what my input would bring to the discussion. And eventually, obviously, if you've read the review, which you should, don't just look at these like lines taken out of context on Twitter. Yes, I know it's a bit provocative. Read the review. There's a reason why I said that. But um, there was no way I was going to have an unbiased impression of Cold Steel 4. Uh, just as the series itself has a lot of baggage, if you want to get into Cold Steel 4 yourself, I had a lot of baggage going into it. I've been a huge fan of the series since Trails in the Sky. I've played both Zero and Now in Japanese. And as people listening to this podcast know, I've been active within the community for a long time now, even if I'm not as active as I used to be. So it's not like I went into Cold Steel for being wholly ignorant of the controversy surrounding it. That's actually a main reason why I was hesitant to give Cold Steel 3 a shout on the RPG of the Year podcast last year. Not because I didn't think it deserved it at the time, but rather I knew that Cold Steel 3, even more so than some other cliffhangers in the series like Trails in the Sky First Chapter or Cold Steel 1, it's less of a cliffhanger and more of this story got chopped off right in the middle. It does really feel like it just... So I'm, I've always kind of been more on the fringe of the series, just basically played through each of the English releases. Uh, so I'm kind of at the point where it's like, if I want to do Cold Steel 4, it's due diligence. I should really find some fan translations to Crossbow Games if I want to have a meaningful, you know, uh, interpretation of what Cold Steel 4 is, is actually, which is kind of like a culmination point of everything that came before it. Which is why, as you said, it's such a hard game to review, even independent of your opinion. It's like, okay, you, you've got all this information from eight games preceding it. Good. Now you're ready. Yeah. So what I ended up deciding on was, well, I'm never going to be, quote unquote, objective about this review. So I just need to focus on how I felt about the game and why I didn't resonate with it. Or rather, why it disappointed me. Because there are parts of Cold Steel 4 that I enjoy. Like, obviously, the people in the staff here can vouch for me when I say it. When I, because I, when I was going through Act One, I was really enjoying Cold Steel Four. I was having a great time. It just event you eventually hit a point where the cracks that maybe you had noticed before are impossible to ignore. And I just hit a point where I started reevaluating not just Cold Steel Four, but knowing the context of the Cold Steel arc as a whole. I felt like, and I feel like, it was a bit of a mistake. And when, when you say that line, you say don't take it out of context. The context there mostly um, involves the idea known as, this is a Trails of Cold Steel 3 spoiler. The idea of the curse is what you're referring to there. Not just the curse, so that's certainly part of it. But I feel like from the get-go, like looking back on it, the main conceit of Cold Steel as an arc, where the main playable cast is going to be Class 7, it's going to be a classroom which with characters, which obviously is going to be a larger main cast than Trails in the Sky or Crossbell, 
is that ends with the way that Falcom had previously and continues to utilize character development and tying the main characters into the story of any individual arc. And the um, the pacing of Cold Steel 1 wasn't so bad, but when you look at how the character development was treated in Cold Steel 1, you see how you're kind of screwed if you do, screwed if you don't, in the sense that you never, you only ever really saw one half of the cast from Cold Steel in Cold Steel 1 at any given time, because they were constantly being split in literally in half for things like field studies, and that meant that there were some character developments that would happen off screen, there would be some character moment, characters that just wouldn't get enough screen time, like Elliot, even after Cold Steel 4, like Elliot, what, what was even the point of him being in the story? Yeah, but, it does feel like, and this is just my perception of 1 through 3, that by having a large cast, and which you know, you'll get into that for 4, it seems like like the only way we can handle this is just by giving each character one, or if they're lucky, two identifiable character traits. Like, did you know Elliot likes music? He's a music guy. There's Elliot, the music guy. That's well, that's his character, the music guy. <laughs> and it's just kind of like, and every some characters are treated better than others, but because they have to frame them as like this is a class of characters, we need you to be able to distinguish them. We kind of have to lean a little they're not flanderized or at least my interpretation so far is that they're not but they kind of have to lean into like this is this character's primary trait this is this character's primary trait and just feels more slapdash at least three in my opinion and i didn't even really mention this in my review but like when you look at it through that context, it becomes clear that stuff like bonding events were like a necessary band-aid to try and give these characters more development without having to naturally tie it into the plot, if that makes any sense. Because for a bunch of these characters, like some key aspects to their like personalities are kind of locked behind these and like backstories and whatnot. And I'll be honest, I never really was a fan of the idea of the bonding events in the first place because I didn't like the idea that key information about these characters was locked behind, like, a limited number of bonding events that you could do at any given time unless you, like, replayed the game. And I never really was a fan of the format of that. And I'm sure people are going to be saying, oh, well, then why? You're just a Cold Steel 3 hater. Well, uh, Cold Steel hater or something. But it's like... There's just so many basic issues with Cold Steel's, like, structure. Like, obviously, the cast size is one thing, but, and obviously, like, what I've talked about is another, but there's issues just with the basic storytelling, too. Not just the pacing, which just gets worse in Cold Steel 4, since there's even more characters on screen than there's ever been before. Like, there's one scene, Act 2, that I keep coming back to that is just embarrassing with how many people end up on screen at the same time, and it just completely ruins any tension that scene should have had. Um, but just basic issues with the plot, where, which is mostly where the curse comes in, because it's a deus ex machina. Like, the game says, oh, the curse can't make you do something, and then, like, later on will say, oh, but it'll force you to do something if you fight against it. It's just like, make up your mind. Like, 
And there's so many things, like pretty much every major side quest in Cold Steel 4 directly deals with the curse. And not necessarily in a good way. And the way that the curse not just impacts the story of Cold Steel 4 and the Cold Steel arc, but even in some ways directly impacts story threads from Trails in the Sky and the Crossbell duology really rubbed me, like rubbed off the wrong way. I've only played up to three where the curse is kind of introduced there. But my take on it is it just felt like kind of a sloppy way to like narrow the focus of like, what is the, who is the bad guy? Because up to that point, the game, the games have actually been pretty good that there's like no individual, like singular point of antagonism in this whole series. There's just, you know, there's a couple of key figures in it, but then it just kind of feels like they just decided to like trickle it down to like, actually everything that's ever, that's bad that's ever happened has something to do with this vague sense of evil force known as the curse. And it just kind of felt like it waters down, like, who is like the, the the source of the plot? Like usually, an antagonist has some sort of motive, and that sort of that some sort of motive usually to some sort of catalyst to put the plot in motion, and eventually the protagonist has to act against it. But now it's just sort of like let's just make the focus of this antagonistic force, this vague curse, and that way we can just easily put a bullseye on it and like, this is the thing we need to solve, this one thing. And it's also the answer to everything. And I've only played three, so it's I'm, I don't have the context of what it actually does in four, but it just that's what it felt like it was going to. Like, oh, so this is the one singular thing. That makes it easy. That's how I felt. And it, it yeah. also kind of retroactively, it's like, oh, well, how far forward, or I guess, reverse on the timeline does this curse reach in terms of major events that have already happened well it's responsible for the hundred day war so no of course it is so it's just i do also want to comment on the cast thing so i have not seen the insane balloon of cold seal 4 i feel like it's not like large casts are inherently bad if they, uh, this is kind of a hypothetical here, if you had a large number of characters that were like nimbly moving in and out of the focus of the story, uh, doing like different sorts of tasks on different levels of importance in different regions of the world, and you had a lot of interlocking parts and a lot of, you know, story threads happening in parallel, just in principle, that seems like that could be really complicated and interesting. But based on what I've seen of gameplay and cutscenes of Cold Steel 4 and even present earlier than that, it just seems like the series has this tendency just to kind of ball up everyone into this mostly giant blob of so many people on the screen at once and just kind of pushes them along the same string at the same time so you'll have like this one antagonist like McBurn. How many times do you fight him in the series? On one end of the room and then you have everyone else on the other end of the room just like all there at once just because everyone's present at the same time, everyone's equally important. And then, as you mentioned, they mostly have to all get their, you know, their word in edgewise. And it's just kind of like there are, you could have you could have used the same volume of characters, perhaps in a more interesting way. Yeah. And this isn't really a spoiler, but I'm going to try and be vague anyways. Like act two, my main issue with the pacing and whatnot. So in act one and probably the reason, well, definitely the reason why I enjoyed it much more than the rest of the game was because it kind of takes that structure of having a smaller, more personalized cast and uses it for the runtime of Act 1. And they justify not bringing in characters from, like, old class 7 for most of it by saying, oh, they're off doing everything while you're doing your thing. 
don't worry about them. They've got their job to do, which makes sense. Like those characters have had their development. You don't necessarily need to bring them into play right now. Have them do something off screen that makes sense. And even if we don't see what they're doing, that's okay. Whereas in act two, it feels like, okay. And this is a similar issue that I had with Cold Steel 2, where it feels like, okay, so you're doing something in this area of Erebonia. Now do something else that probably could have been dealt with in the um, first act in the same area, but deal with that now in the second act, even though you'd already done a bunch of stuff in this area previously in the story. Even if it's not a major deal, you need to do this. And, like, even in the positive reviews I've, met, I've noticed, like, everyone agrees that Act 2 could have been, like, cut in half easily and nothing would have been lost. And, um... Now, here's the part where it gets really uh, tough to talk about things. So, obviously, stuff like pacing issues and things like cast bloat are one thing, but... Even disregarding the curse, my major issue with Cold Steel 4 is the way that it fumbles the characters. And part of it is because of the curse, but also part of it is that certain characters that have been around in the series since the Trills and Sky trilogy, that have had plot-like threads throughout the series and have been foreshadowed to do things, end up not doing anything despite all of the buildup. And there's other instances of characters that have to a certain degree been flanderized and yeah, nobody a tricky game to talk about there there's one thing that i really wanted to talk about in the cold steel 4 review but i didn't want to spoil anything and this is your warning i'm just gonna say put something out there but this is your warning because just mentioning this for people that have played Cold Steel 3, they'll get an idea of what it means. So, like, I'm not sure if uh, you can put, like, a timestamp or yeah, something. Yeah, I'll put, I'll put a spoiler warning in the timestamp, and I'll verbalize it here. It sounds like we're going into a spoiler territory at this point. Yeah, so... What is with this series and not allowing people to die? Because one of my favorite things about Cold Steel 3's ending with the way that it raised the stakes was seeing the courageous blow up and seeing a bunch of people within there supposedly just die, exit stage left, all that stuff. Personally, I think this is just like the most obvious example of cheap drama. It's having your cake and eating it too. You can have the really tragic moment of the appearance of a character's death. But then you have the happy moment later of that actually it was fine. And it's not even and this just happens happy. every this happens in a bunch of games and everywhere. But it just this happens so frequently. And it's just you know, it does get old. Yeah, people say, oh, that's been in the series since the beginning. And I guess to a certain extent that's true. But the best example before Cold Steel was just oh hey, um Luve, or however you pronounce his name, shows up again in Phantasma and Trills in the Sky the Third, but it's not actually him. It's and it's not like he's actually back. It's just Phantasma was used as a conduit to let Joshua have some closure with him. Which I don't see a problem with that. 
Like, it makes sense within the plot of Trills in the Sky the Third that that would even be possible, and it's not like he's actually back. But, for example, stuff like Crow. Crow's character um, plot, his development ended with Cold Steel 2, and yet he comes back in Cold Steel 3, and even in Cold Steel 4, he's like, I'm just running on borrowed time. But no, at the end, he comes back for good. Even though he died in Cold Steel 2, even though his character development doesn't really go anywhere in Cold Steel 3 and 4, and even though, in my opinion, his whole character arc in the first place wasn't really worth much. Like, I never really understood the point of Rain going so far to try and bring him back in Cold Steel 2 when it just didn't really resonate with me in the plot. It felt like, okay, so this guy's actually a terrorist. He shot the Chancellor. Why are you trying so, so hard to bring him back when he is a criminal? Even if everything had gone right and he hadn't died at the end of Cold Steel 2, what was the point of that? And it's just there's actually this actually reminds me one of my favorite scenes. So let me just preface this by saying I'm honestly not really a big fan of trails in general. I played all the English games. I like I think they're good on average. I don't not like a huge fan. But one of my favorite scenes in Cold Steel is I think it's at the end of two or beginning of two, beginning of two. I don't remember where it is exactly, but there's a scene where. Reen goes to meet Toa and it's like the only time in the series where Reen kind of breaks down because he failed. He failed to save Crow and he like breaks down and he's like, I I couldn't do it. Like this is the one thing that he couldn't do. And he's promised that he was going to do it, but he couldn't. And that kind of felt real to me in a way because like everyone has failures and like try as hard as you can. It's not always going to come out like perfect. And sometimes tragic things happen, but now that just, you kind of like dilute that. So, and that's just one, that's just one example. And it's like, yeah, I'm I'm glad that the series, well, Cold Steel 4 does have a happy ending, I guess, but it's like, just the way it gets to there doesn't feel necessarily earned. It feels like a cop-out and it feels like it comes at the expense of any sort of gravitas that uh, previous scenes have, the previous entries. And it, it never feels as cheap as in some sections of Cold Steel 4, which I guess I'm just going full, full hog with uh, spoilers here. But there's multiple instances where you beat people that are on the side of basically causing the apocalypse and, want, and they basically try to commit suicide. And your characters knock like the knife or gun or whatever out of their hand. And it happens several times and it just was like, no, don't even try that because I know because this happens after they bring back pretty much everyone that died in Cold Steel Three. I don't believe you. You do not have the right to do that because you've shown that that gravity just doesn't exist in this series. That just feels cheap. It feels like shock value, and I don't think the series has earned the right to go with that, um, to well, or at least this arc has has earned the right to even attempt that. It feels cheap, it feels disrespectful, and it just, that's definitely a per, like a really personal opinion for mine, but it's just like, really? Really? I, my, I'm still kind of stuck on what Adam said earlier about so many games or fiction in general 
wanting to have the drama of character death, but they don't want to make anyone sad. Like they don't want to actually go through with it. They just want to have the stakes there. And then they just be like, oh, don't worry. Don't worry. It's fine. We brought them back and we will explain it away. And I don't want to bring up the other series that that's touched because there are a couple from this year and last. Uh, well, we're in a spoiler area. I'm not going to spoil the game, but it shows up in Final Fantasy VII Remake. And it's just like, uh, that's, part yeah. of, that's, that's part of the reason I didn't care for that game. Uh, man, I, I wish I could talk about it more. All right, here's a Nesta it also shows up. It also shows up in like Xenoblade 2 and probably lots yeah, of other places. I just kind of okay, get so old. So yeah, I won't bring up any specific spoilers because that, that would be kind of losing the plot. But so many games fake out with character death. And I'm not saying it's bad in every instance, but if they always you put it in some climactic moment, like i.e. at the very end of Trails of Cold Steel 3. But they don't want to go through with it because that would be too poignant. That would be too bittersweet or something. It would be too sad. They don't, I don't know. Like, I'm not saying every time a character is presumed dead, they have to actually die. Like, this doesn't need to be a zero or 100 thing. It's just right now it's zero. Like, Cold Steel, the series, and Adam said he's not really a fan. I do want to point out that before anyone tries to paint with a broad brush, we have a lot of Trails fans. And even I, I gave uh, Sky the Third a, a nine, and I gave the PC version of two an eight. So I don't, hate this series though i could see people saying rpg site hates trails or whatever um but i do feel like because of so many times that they've pulled back on moments like fake character deaths that i have a hard time at least the further in you go feeling any real sort of tension where it's um, just like oh no are the stakes really going to matter this time or is it just going to be hand waved away yet again yeah, and it's like it's got to the point where like in previous entries, like I might have been able to just kind of like sweep some issues under the rug because it's like, well, the arc's not over yet, or well, we don't know what's gonna happen. But it's gotten to the point where Cold Steel 4, now that we have seen how the Cold Steel arc ends, well, all those things I swept under the rug, I I've been reevaluating some of them. Like there's a ton of issues that I've had with this arc and even the series as a whole that I thought, well, it, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. We'll, we'll deal with that. And then you get to the end of Cold Steel 4 and I'll, I'll fully admit, part of Cold Steel 4's rating for me isn't just about Cold Steel 4. It's about the culmination of all these issues that I was otherwise able to ignore that I just can't anymore. Maybe this is sort of what you're getting at, but like one of like the trails brand series it's it's type it's flavor of intrigue is to basically have a villainous character come up basically tell basically say you don't know anything and then go away and the series it 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 puts a lot of weight or a lot of heavy lifting basically done by like it's a mystery we don't know what's going to happen so you have to play more you have to find out what happens next and so there's a lot of it that's just like you said. We don't know what's going to happen. We got to get it. We got to give it some time to breathe, and got to let it take place. But then, as it actually gets to the point where it actually like, all right, now you actually have to start telling me like these mysteries that you've been holding onto for so long in terms of like what are what's what are the character motivations? What are they trying to do? And what is actually going on behind the scenes here? And all that. Like once they'll start getting answered, and if those answers aren't sufficient or they're not you know, compelling. satisfying. It's like everything that came before it is 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 diluted. Like, oh, that's 
like honestly what i know of like for example what i know about chancellor osborne now like what he actually is trying to do it makes his appearance in like trails in the sky the third where he was very intimidating like it dilutes it it's like oh i, I know what you're trying to do like it's okay it was it, all that's all that that's it you know it's i'm not saying what it is but it's just the, the intrigue was kind of like an empty promise yeah. <laughs> right it's like oh okay that's what you are okay sure <laughs> that's fine i suppose but yeah it was just like and i'll and i'll say this on the podcast because i also uh, kind of said it on twitter and a few other places Despite everything, the main reason why I gave Cold Steel 4 a 5 out of 10, the thing that kind of broke the camel's back is that there are some pretty significant issues with the localization right now. Though I will say, if you're just critical pathing Cold Steel 4, you're not going to see the worst of it. Like, for the most part, the main scenario, the translation is fine. There's a few stilted lines. There is that hilarious... uh, translation issue at the end of Act 2 where they referred to see um, Chloe's uh, falcon bird whatever as Zeke <laughs> but for the most part if you're just going through the crit path you'll be fine I'm sure I'm going to get some crap on Twitter in like a couple weeks saying hey the translation's fine it's like yeah if you're not really talking to NPCs then sure but as soon as you actually try and talk with NPCs, which is one of the main reasons I feel like people like try and sell the series over people. It's like, oh, the NPCs, they, they change what they're saying, but depending on the story situation. So it feels like the world's actually alive. But if you go and actually try and fulfill that like conceit in Cold Steel 4, like stilted dialogue, tons of punctuation issues, text overflow after text overflow, it's like it gets bad. It gets, it, it's a lot better in the finale chapter, thankfully, but in Act 1, especially Act 2, and like parts of Act 3, it's just bad. Really, really bad. And eventually it just reached the point where I was like, no, no, this, this should have been delayed. This needed another editing pass. I'm fully cognizant that NIS America was definitely impacted by COVID-19. I'm sure even Falcom was to a certain extent, but this is bad. If um, the translation issue does get fixed, I am not opposed to updating my review score to a 6 out of 10, because it's just, for me, for someone that has been with the series for so long and tries to get immersed in these worlds, it just it got to the point where I just couldn't with the NPCs because every time I'd see a text overflow box or every time I'd see like some parts of the dialogue that clearly kind of makes it, um, takes me out of the illusion of I'm talking to a a living, breathing member of this world to I am talking to a, a, an NPC with pre um, predetermined dialogue, which it sounds silly, but I'm not sure if that makes any sense. No, it, it makes sense. Where it's just it takes it takes that veneer away. Where you're like, oh right, this is just this is just a presentation, and it's got issues on the back end. So now my illusion is shattered. I will say, but just this is just a clerical thing. Getting your review score updated, like through like like Metacritic, is really hard. In yeah. fact, like I wouldn't even bother. It, they they make it so hard to change your score there. And they, they're, they're, honestly, the reason they do it is because they don't want people to be like literally 
Dog uh, yeah, like dogpiled, like you scored it too high, you scored it too low, and you're now you're changing it. Like they just, this is the score, this is it. So unless there's like some like nefarious reason you scored something, they're not going to change it. Yeah, um, I'll also say that people have been giving me crap for saying, oh, well, he gave Cold Steel 3 a 9 out of 10, even though it has many of the same issues. Well, if it hasn't become aware, if it, well, if it hasn't become clear after the last couple of things I've said, would I give Cold Steel 3 a 9 out of 10 still? No, I wouldn't. If I was to review it today, I'd definitely give it a lower score. because That kind of goes back to like sweeping things under the rug because it hasn't been like, there, there's so many things that the game just like, yeah, I don't, don't, don't want like, to penalize this thing that might end up like really hammering home in the next game super strongly, and then it does the opposite, and you're like, "Well, shit." <laughs> so again, I think we're out of um, just I think we're out of spoiler territory for the game yeah. at this point. Uh, so if you're listening to my voice now, you're you're safe at yeah. you know from this point forward. I do plan on playing this game. I don't know if it'll be alongside the PC release next year because I still have that okay Brian, you got to you got to play the crossbell games and I don't want to just be like, well, you know, well James says it's bad, so I'm never going to play it. Why bother? Cuz I want to form my own opinion. Uh, I will even play. go ahead. Obviously I'm biased because I am good friends with a bunch of the people on the translate fan translation effort for both Charles uh, Trails from Zero and uh, Trails to Azure, but um, they're both really good projects. Uh, Trails to Azure is not out yet, the fan translation, and it'll be significantly more difficult to get it legit, so keep that in mind. But uh, Trails from Zero, the current patch is very, very good. You can buy it on DL site with no issues, even internationally, so you can just buy it there, download the patcher, you're good to go. That's on PC. It, obviously, since it's a port of a PSP game, if you pretty much any PC from the last 10 years shouldn't have any issues running it. Um, despite everything I've said about uh, Cold Steel 4 and whatnot, I'm still going to play Hajimari. I'm, at this point, unless things drastically change, I'll probably be the one that ends up reviewing Hajimari, especially since I have a PSVR and has PSVR content. Well, there's but, nothing uh, wrong with like just because a game has a and this isn't a, this isn't even objective. I don't think anyone at RPG site acts like we are the arbiters of quality. What we say is the way. It's an, it's a substantiated yeah, opinion. That's what it is. So it's like, like what if let's say in the next five years, sorry, I don't mean to talk over you. Let's say in the next five years we play Hajimari, it's a known quantity, and then whatever's next in Calvard is actually surprisingly good. Like, that would actually be kind of an interesting arc where you say, like, yeah, they kind of lost the plot at this point in the series, but then they redeem themselves here. Like, and that's just obviously a hypothetical, but this isn't, like, a condemnation of the whole series in perpetuity. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. The only thing I'm condemning is, like, the main conceit of Cold Steel just, in retrospect, never was going to work out super well. And shocker, shocker, at the end of Cold Steel 4, it definitely comes to fruition. But, um, yeah, uh, I have heard some things about Hajimari from, fr from good friends that they played through Cold Steel 4, had the same impressions I did, but they ended up really loving Hajimari. So I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that I will feel the same. Does that mean I'm not crossing my fingers as I'm speaking right now about that? No, I'm definitely crossing my fingers because Cold Steel 4 has definitely dampered by uh, 
tempered my feelings of the series quite significantly, but I'm not going to say that I'm not going to play Hajimari because like as Ryan has even said on his own, though, I'm pretty sure it's just been like internally. We're, we're both kind of like boiled frogs. Yeah. Like we're, we're already in the soup. Might as well just make yourself comfortable. Yeah. I mean, I'm 60, more than 60% of the way through this series. I, can't back out now. I need to see how it ends, even if it's incredibly disappointing, which I hope it isn't. Well, that was a really cool discussion about storytelling, about conceit, about intrigue. So, and obviously, if we go forward and people play the, the PS4 version or the eventual PC and Switch version and has a different opinion, like they are allowed to come on the podcast and talk about it. So, it'll be interesting to see if that happens over the next half year or so. So, uh, like I said, we're out of spoiler territory. We're just going to the main news and topics of the week. There's not many. It's kind of a typical lull leading up to November stuff. A few interesting things headlined by the surprise announcement of an official localization for the first Fire Emblem game. Fire Emblem Shadow Dragon and the Blade of Light is releasing on Nintendo Switch digitally for, is it $6 or $7 for low price? on $6. $6 on December 4th. Which is an interesting out of nowhere announcement with the caveat that it will only be available for a limited time, which we've also seen with the recently released Mario uh, remasters of 64, Sunshine, and, and um, Galaxy. Okay, so, why is that? Like, I can't think of one reason. Like, All Stars, okay. Maybe because it's a limited anniversary thing, I could kind of understand. Yeah, it's a collector's it. item or something. But why a digital release of a of an NES game? Because I think the point is just to create like a, a sort of an artificial scarcity to you know give people the the you know basically in, in implement FOMO, like fear of missing it forever, so they're going to buy it even if they weren't really interested in it. So, like, the strategy is just basically you can only buy it for so long, limited time, Disney Vault, and then hoping people will just buy it more so than who would have otherwise. So, yeah. I, don't I mean, know. at the very least, like, the Mario games were, like, re-releases, and they were available before, and, you know, you can, you might even already own them or whatever. Like, I, I still think it's a bad idea, don't get me wrong. I'm just sort of trying to reconcile something here. But then, like, this is, like, a first-time localization for a 30-year-old game that's never gotten an official release in English before. And, like, this is this is your chance to finally play it officially in English. But you know, it's only going to be on sale for four months. It's like, that seems kind of kind of strange. It's just weird because, like, back in the Wii days, I think all the way back, like, the virtual console idea seemed like such high potential about, damn, the Nintendo has this great backlog of games. You know, there's so much they could do with them to preserve them forever or a long time. And then they just fumble here and fumble there. And eventually they're just like, here's a re-release available outside of that system for a limited time. Like, okay, that's where we ended up. I don't feel like as passionately about some people who are like trying to rake them over the coals, but I just feel like it's a really kind of needless and dumb decision that doesn't gain them a lot. It's a $6 game. Like, how many more purchases over the lifetime that this game is available are they going to get by making it arbitrarily limited compared to just having it available? Like, like I would like to think that Nintendo has a marketing team that is very smart and you know studies you know these sorts of things in great far more great detail than we do. But on its surface, I just don't see how this makes much sense at all. 
as for the game itself, I'm also this kind of sort of like not sure where this game, to what extent is it going to hold up? Obviously, Fire Emblem has kind of been through a few phases in its lifetime. Like first, it wasn't even ever localized. And starting with the Game Boy Advance games, it did get localized. And then they sort of had uh, different sorts of uh, different, a paradigm shift, starting with Awakening in terms of quality of life and features. And then you could argue that maybe Three Houses is another start of a paradigm shift, or at least an inflection point. So to undo all that and play how it originally started, I wonder if it's really going to feel like it carries into 2020 or 2021 in terms of just playing through it. It'll be an interesting game just to experience in terms of like, this is where it started, but is it going to be much fun? Yeah, my, like I've played every English Fire Emblem game and I guess I should say I've played every Fire Emblem game that uh, from four onwards, English or not. Um, so like I haven't played any of the NES or Famicom ones. So I'm sort of interested in playing this like academically. I sort of expect that it hasn't aged well. I know they're adding like quality of life stuff, like save states in a Fire Emblem game are basically cheating. Um, but, uh, you know, just kind of play it academically, just to sort of like see firsthand, like, ah, so this is how the series started 30 years ago, even if the game itself has basically been outclassed in every way, maybe. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm sort of the kind of person who like kind of really digs into that sort of like, you know, more this clerical academic like understanding of like this is how it started, and I can and I can like speak to it firsthand, even if the game itself I may not be able to like recommend. That's how I'm approaching it. Yeah, that makes sense. But like, even when you hear like as to the the accolades that people place on what you call Fire Emblem Four Genealogy of the Holy War, even there you kind of have to come up with some caveats like. Everyone, if I remember right, everyone has their own pool of money and then there is no trading, stuff like that, where it's just like weird systems they have to work around and then trying to imagine going three more games even prior to that. What other sort of concessions or things do you have to give up just to experience it? And maybe it'll be undone by some of these quality of life additions. But uh, I also do wonder, like this game has a remake of some sort, at least. What is the DS game, Shadow Dragon? It's a remake of 1 and 3? I'm trying to remember. No, it's just a remake of 1. Oh, okay. Because then there was also a DS game that never got localized. It's kind of throwing a wrench in my understanding of the history. Uh, so it, it does kind of wonder, like, is anyone actually going to be able to earnestly recommend the original over the remake here? Now, I... Um, like you mentioned, I like to play games that are older. Like I mentioned previously, I was playing through Fallout's which aren't as old, but um, you kind of have to go in with the mindset of games being a product of their time. Like you, you, to judge it on 2020 standards is just a bit unfair. So it's, though it's understandable. It's not like it's the wrong thing to do. It's just, it's just, it's just a caveat to keep in mind. So uh, I don't know if we're actually going to cover this with a review on the site. I think it would be kind of interesting, but it'd be a really hard thing to score. So how do you assign a number to something like this? Uh, five out of ten. Yeah, there you go. Uh, so that, that, that score doesn't cause problems. Not at all. Well, it depends on the game. Uh, I gave Fallout seventy six a five out of ten, which no one really had an issue with. Uh, but we'll see uh, on December fourth. You know, if we end up having the bandwidth to cover it, um, it'll be only available for a limited time. So give up your your sandwich money for a for a day and grab. Shadow Dragon and the Blade of Light uh, for six bucks if you'd like. Or if you don't like the idea of 
limited releases and then vote with your wallet and just let it go by. We also got some new details about Disguise 6, Defiance of Destiny, uh, a bunch of new um, character, was it artwork for these? So I don't know if you know the details specifically. Well, about basically, here's what, they, here's what they revealed. They they basically revealed two new characters in the game. You know, these games usually have this cast of like four or five characters that are easy to work around, um, main characters. And then um, there's, they introduced two characters, two new classes. There is a um, psychic class and then there's like a mobile battle princess class so these are new classes added to the game you know the, these games you know they add a few classes each for each entry and these are the new ones the psychic has superhuman powers he said it says um yeah it doesn't it's not very clear what exactly he can do but some sort of magic ability where the battle princess uh is like a long range uh bombarding sort of class i guess against numerous enemies and then they also showed models of like classic Disgaea classes in the new 3D art style. So like this is how the classic mage unit, which if you play Disgaea, you know what a mage looks like, how they look like in this new like chibi art style. And there's also um, a, a auto battle mode, which is new, which, you know, just like if you're random, run into a random battle, you can just kind of click a button and hope they fight for themselves and presumably do well. Does it show um, off the printies at all? I don't know if we've seen a printy in the 3D art style yet. I need them. That, that, that sounds like cursed. <laughs> Honestly, like, like, weirdly, the printy games, I know I talked about them a couple of weeks ago, but that has made me want to play like Disgaea properly. Like, the, the sense of humor I saw there has made me want to go on to it. I've actually started playing the fourth entry. I, I did say in the staff chat a while ago, but I, I, I don't know if I have like the brain for it because I'm just really bad. At Disguise Four, so the idea of an auto battle kind of kind of keeps me interested, I guess. It'll be interesting to see if like the new art style and the better presentation will kind of expand the audience for this sort of game. It's still really weird that this is like Switch exclusive in the West, but PS4 in Japan. Like, I don't really understand the oh, logic. Really? Yep. I didn't know it was. I thought it was Switch exclusive everywhere. That is really weird. I, some people have argued, like, well, they say the game do the games do better on Switch, so maybe that's why. But it's like, if you're already if it's already exists on PS4, and you already have a localization, I feel like the amount of effort, the additional effort required to also do the localization on PS4, is it really not worth doing that? Yeah, like obviously like, we don't know the nuts and bolts of game development, but if you can say the PS4 version of the game exists, and then the localization of the game exists what the linkage of getting the localization present into the ps4 version of the game how I and, and selling that hurdle, that hurdle yeah. is lower but, than the other two or it's like lower than the amount of additional sales you would get by offering that product it just seems like uh, i know some people have also argued maybe nintendo would like paid some money for marketing or localization and but that seems kind of that doesn't seem like something that has been there's not a lot of precedent for that i think i'm not sure it's weird Here's another George game. Uh, I don't know. Remember this year, early in 2020, when Dragon Ball Z Kakarot released? Holy crap, ago. that was this year. Oh, my <laughs> God. January? So Yeah, uh, that was January. Before I talk about the news, did you ever play the DLC that introduced like Beerus's place or no? Yeah, I did. I um, I had like the ultimate version, whatever they call it. 
and I am a pretty massive Dragon Ball fan, so like anything that pops up, I will generally play. I, I didn't see the point of talking about it in like a formal review, and I guess I didn't mention it in the podcast at all, but it, it was okay. Well, um, I think not every DLC package is really on that same volume. But yeah, anyways, the reason pretty- why I bring it up here is because they announced basically a uh, basically a new part to the post game experience of Dragon Ball Z Kakarot, introducing uh, Golden Frieza and Horde battles. So Golden Frieza is kind of in that weird fringe territory where most people think of it as like a Dragon Ball Super invention, though technically the first movie that it appeared in had the Dragon Ball Z label. So the same is really true for uh, Super Saiyan Blue as well. You don't really get into pure super territory until you get into like the Universe 6 stuff. Ultra Instinct. I remember in a news post, I said something like, this, this DLC adds the Super Saiyan God like transformation from Dragon Ball Super anime and someone got really upset with me like no it was actually <laughs> added in the it was actually added in the movie uh like whatever whatever the Beerus movie was Battle like Gods. oh it's right. Gods. yeah it's like yeah you're right yeah people you are, are you are really... sure. you are <laughs> when it comes to correct <laughs> when it comes to Dragon Ball people are really fussy about that sort of thing uh i i don't see the point cuz it's like I, I could go into a massive Dragon Ball. You know what? I'm going to go into a little bit of a Dragon Ball rant. So people get really obsessive about where this form originated from, what this form means, what the official name is. Like everyone got really up in arms when they changed it from Super Saiyan God, Super Saiyan to Super Saiyan Blue, even though Super Saiyan God, Super Saiyan is so stupid to say. Uh, well, it's still, it's still used like that, I think, in the Viz manga. It's weird. Really? It, also depend, it also depends on like what media you're reading because the, the anime is... Toei and localized with animation, and then the manga I believe is Viz. I hope I have that right. Um, and then Shueisha is involved, and it's just like it, it kind of depends on just what lens you're viewing it through. But but like I just, it's the same way when people get really annoyed about Star Wars stuff. It's like Dragon Ball is so wacky and over the top, and like the the series even says power levels don't matter. But then people get really fussed about that, and they get fussed that just. Just it's bizarre, um, but with this DLC, I imagine it's just going to be like the first one where it's like a pretty. Actually, in the first one, the battle against Beerus was really cool. Um, it was it took like half an hour to do like the whole thing through, but like it was oh, a cool really? battle. Yeah, it's they're they're really short pieces of stuff. Like you have to. The way I looked at it is that you unlock the Super Saiyan God transformation for the rest of the game. So like if you just want to run around as Super Saiyan God Goku and Vegeta, then awesome. That DLC is for you. And I think it'll be the same here, where it's like, okay, cool, I've got Super Saiyan Blue. Uh there's still one more like scenario DLC, like a, a bigger piece of DLC that like has there's no information about it. And beyond the idea that that's pretty cool. Like more Dragon Ball Kakarot would be awesome. Uh it kind of amazes me that like even a year later what oh god it's not even a year later is it oh geez okay when that eventually comes out it will be more than a year after the main games come out like the fact that a dragon ball game has been supported like that long when it's not something like xenoverse is just kind of kind of amazing um so they don't have any date on the second dlc it's just fall uh it'll be soon i imagine um i think i might i don't know if we'll be super interested because by the time november comes around i think we'll all be screaming about cyberpunk and so on but it'd be cool to review all of the dlc in like a general thing so i I have enjoyed like looking back i think i 
probably was a bit too harsh on Kakarot. Like I've looked at games I've given higher scores since, and I'm like, ah, oh, you know, like I did really, really enjoy it. Like a seven, you know, maybe wasn't enough. So it'd be cool to do like an update on that all. Yeah, uh, we we haven't done it a lot, but we have done a few like this game one year later, or um, sometimes we do the individual DLC reviews if they're like substantial enough to be to merit that. It might be it might be suitable to like bundle these, especially if they're kind of short individually. They kind of bundle what they put out for this game after the fact, and just say like, all right, here, even if it's unscored, like here is just a write up on everything they added. If if you haven't been following along, this is what they added. So yeah. Uh, I guess that depends on how big they go with this final piece of DLC. Like from the start, it seemed like it's probably the Universe Six stuff. Like that—that that is just a wild guess off my off my head. But the way they teased it as a biggest story-based thing. So I don't watch a lot of anime, but like for whatever reason, just because it's part of my childhood, I do keep up with the Dragon Ball anime. At least not not the manga, but the but like if Super came back or whatever new iteration of Dragon Ball came back, I would probably watch it. That's a bit childish, I know, just to have that be like my only exposure to anything anime. <laughs> it's just kind of where I am. Did uh, you did you play the Xenoverse games at all? No, for for whatever reason, I've always treated it as just something I watch. I haven't really played a Dragon Ball game. Since, uh, like, Xenoverse is actually like Xenoverse uh, two, especially was really good. If I had to go back and say it on in this generation, what games I put the most time into, but the first Xenoverse I was like obsessed with. Like looking back, I am <laughs> I played that so much. So I would love a, a third Xenoverse game. I know that's maybe unoriginal, and people are like maybe want Kakarot two or something like that, but. Give me more Xenoverse. No good uh, segue out of that, but we also have a new announcement for Darkest Dungeon 2. It is releasing on Epic Game Store Early Access next year. So before I go on, did anyone play Darkest Dungeon here? No. I've heard it's good, but I haven't played it. So obviously some people have kind of... Uh, you know, whenever you announce something for Epic Game Store, a certain vocal minority of people have umbrage with that. And I'm I'm not saying some of some of their criticisms are valid, uh, but it's as far as we know, it's just the early access period is exclusive to that. I don't know if there'll be a, a shifted delay in terms of a, a 1.0 release for other uh, storefronts or for Steam or whatever. Um, maybe Josh has played this. I wish we could speak to this more at length, but it's going to be hard to kind of say anything meaningful. If none of us. Have I think it. this. In terms of the Epic Game Store thing, it feels similar to like what what was done with Hades. And what I mean by that is like you take a proven indie scale developer, like they've released a game that was received well. Epic gives them some money so they can create a new game, and in exchange, it has to be exclusive to their store, probably for a year. Oh, and man. people can play it; they can provide feedback and presumably make the game better than what it would have been if it didn't get an early access period. And then they did say it is going to be released on other storefronts when yeah. it's done with early access. And when Hades did that, because it started on Epic Game Store, um, now people, it's, it's been a really big success. I'm not obviously not saying Darkest Dungeon is going to be a success, but it's just like, if someone wants to give this developer, like a small developer that doesn't have like a huge corporation backing them some money to make a game, and like it's just exclusive for a time for a period of time before it's technically even 1.0. Sure, I'll take it. Yeah, I didn't see the note that it said they will launch in other PC storefronts once it reaches 1.0. So yeah, Hades really is a a great analogy. 
So if that means you would normally support this in early access and now you're not, well, that's, that's a personal decision. So um, it will be interesting to see like uh, how this is, like if, if it's only limited to that storefront, is it, is it going to uh, kind of be pinched in how much success it would get during this period as it would if it were also on Steam early access? But I don't know. Maybe maybe so not what Hades did. Much. What Hades did is it was on Steam early access, or sorry, uh, Epic Game Store early access for a year, and then it went to Steam early access a year after that. So it was like still early access, and then it fully launched this year. Yeah, I think the original so, plan for it was to launch on Steam at 1.0, but they just plans got shifted, and it ended up obviously working out in the end. Uh, and now, does anyone really? That's the sort of thing about these delayed announcements. Is like, and I feel this way about console shifts as well like when you talk about yakuza and ps5 like after a year or so passes does anyone think back on hades and go or that game came to epic first or or outer worlds just released on um on steam a year from now if anyone be like oh yeah outer worlds that game that was on epic first like it just it matters in the moment but it doesn't it ends up like not really mattering in the long run also like my instant comparison would be like when games are timed exclusives on consoles like that's my most experience of it but like isn't epic game store just like another launcher like if, if you have a pc you can kind of do that sure. this this uh so i don't yeah. really have much of a horse in this race but it does annoy me when people use the argument i'm not blaming you because it is a legitimate question if you have if you aren't familiar with pc gaming but this really annoys me especially on like places like reset era where people oh god oh it's just another launcher why are you making a big deal about it steam is a launcher yes but it also brings a ton of features that other like storefronts simply don't have steam input steam cloud saves um just like steam proton so it's there's all play together yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like my does the Epic Games Store have a forum yet? Nope. You, you guys I, know, like th this comes more from a place of like unfamiliarity. Like yeah, I, yeah, I, I know. Yeah, I'm not blaming you. I'm just saying that it kind of struck a nerve, not because of you, but because it, it's been a source of many of a drama on like places like Reset Era in the past, where it's like people will hop into a thread about people being upset that a game's exclusive to Epic, saying, "Oh, why are you caring? It's just the launcher." It's, uh... <laughs> I have to I don't want to turn this podcast into kind of a, a tired debate, but like some people think, well, if all you're interested in is playing the game, that's all you care. You don't care about forums. You don't care about achievements. You don't care about Proton. You just want to pull it up and play it. Then it doesn't matter. And even then I'm kind of like, that's dubious because let's say you're playing with a Switch Pro controller and that's your controller of choice. And you're playing a game that relies on Steam input to do that. Well, you can't do that on your Epic version of the game. Or games like Monster Hunter World, which utilizes the the, the backend services of Steam for its multiplayer functions. Like you, that's not a game you could just port to another service because they would have to replace that backend. As an aside, maybe uh, Monster Hunter World would be better on PC with a different matchmaking service. To be honest, I'm not sure if you've run into it, but like especially recently, man, the disconnects are frequent. <laughs> Um, I had a bunch when the game first launched, but not in like the last most of a year. But yeah, I, I, I know what you're talking about. So again, inside, honestly, for the most part, I don't really care if a game's on Epic or if a game's on Steam. I 
prefer to buy a game on Steam if it's there, or if it's on good old games, that's even better. But um, pretty much the only game that I've actually been kind of upset that was on Epic Game Store wasn't because of the game itself, but rather... So Samurai Showdown 2019, uh. they the developer slash publisher said that they weren't going to take any exclusivity agreements for the PC version, and then they ended up doing just that for Epic Games Store. So, in that case, like, if a regular developer just wants to take an exclusivity agreement for Epic's Game Store, because it's like, well, it gives them a certain amount of money so they don't have to worry about sales that much, whatever, that's fine. It makes sense. I mean, you're a developer, especially an indie developer in most cases, it's hard enough to sell games. If you can get some guaranteed income, Take it by by all yeah, means. If, if, if Epic tells you we will we will give you the compensation for like a minimum quantity of unit sales to guarantee that you're getting you, that you will at least be in the black, like this game will succeed for you because we are that's where we're placing our floor. How can you blame them for taking that? Yeah, and it's like and so just you. not to get too far off trails here. Like this is only for the early access period. So for this game that we're talking about, yeah. Yeah, we're and, not talking about. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, otherwise, I don't really care if a game's on Epic or not. If you don't want to buy games on Epic because you don't like people uh, things being money had in the first place, whatever. That's your prerogative. Nobody should tell you you're wrong for feeling that way. I guess, but um, yeah. All right, I Darkest do Dungeon 2, coming to early access next year on Epic. Yeah, George? I do love that James saying, uh, basically being quite self-processing, you shouldn't tell people off, like, having their own opinion, despite having, like, for the past few days, had that exact same thing happen to you. <laughs> for your cult. Oh, I've had people even tell me to neck myself. Jesus. Oh, it, it, I just don't get it. Like, we all have opinions, and that's, like, the best part of all this. Like, I love... I'd love it if I come on like next month and I say oh, I love Cyberpunk, and then Brian turns around and says I hate Cyberpunk. That'd be such a cool discussion. But then right, just suddenly, like, I have this. I have the same opinion or opinion. I have the same like if I really enjoy a game or really dislike a game, and then as I see someone else with the opposite opinion, my 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 first instinct is not well they're wrong. It's man, I wonder what they saw that had them come to that conclusion. And maybe that sounds like really like hokey pie in the sky kumbaya. But that really is like where I lean <laughs> lean towards, with the exception being people who declare a very strong opinion without any substantiation at all, where people are just like, "Well, actually, this game's shit. I can't believe you like it." And I was like, "Well, you've left me no avenue for discussion, so I'm not going to bother engaging with that." That's the that's when I have an umbrage where people say like they declare their opinion is like the, the only reasonable the only reasonable thing you could ever come to is that epic game store or x game is terrible or, or awesome like whatever so uh, back to i don't want to i don't want to string cold steel this far along into the podcast but i i was genuine when i said if someone on the site or even like an external contributor has a really really positive impression on it i'm gonna read it like i'm not gonna say well they didn't agree with our website's published score so they're wrong it's like no the our published score is just a substantiated opinion that's what they are anyways to get back on track uh godfall 
<laughs> there you go. So uh, I think you have been the one, George, that have been most interested in this game. Uh, so, <laughs> so and you, you yeah. even wrote this news post about its uh, customization and progression systems. It feels a little bit in the weeds at this point. It kind of tends to get there right before the game launches. Uh, so what did what did they reveal about Godfall this week? Honestly, it it's a video just detailing it. Um, and it's more just talking about the ideals of it. Like I, I watched the whole video and I watched it through like a few times just to make sure I was like fully accurate in what I was saying. And this isn't a comment on the game, but it's mostly just like fluff talk. It's mostly like they 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 mention the phrase the tinkerer's dream quite a lot uh, to describe it. Like they like the idea that players will come into it and they can change whatever they like and they can mess around with all these mechanics. And like that, that that's awesome. But isn't that like a lot of games like this? Like. I, I didn't see anything there that specifically told me this is something you can customize like loads. Uh, you can respec at any point was probably the biggest sort of bit for me that made me go, oh, okay, so I, I guess like you're not really tied down to one class or anything like that. Um, it looks solid though. Like besides looking like really generic and it, yeah, that's, probably its biggest issue is just looks quite generic and it's been marketed quite badly but in terms of combat like it kind of reminds me of the avengers um i know we don't we don't speak we don't speak of that game but you know the combat there was good like i, I really enjoyed like quite a lot of the combat in marvel's avengers and this looks like that but not laden by all the issues of like why do these all like rip off marvel characters so I, i'm pretty excited for it it's one of those that i've not got any expectations for so hopefully it'll Positively. Well, I feel but kind of that... bad because I think I used um I think I used like the tinker type phrase in terms of wasteland to talk about how it has a bunch of underlying systems that you can kind of like tweak and shift based on how you like to play. So yeah, I'm watching through the video right now and it's showing like tiered skill levels and trees and weapon attributes. So yeah, it seems like mm -hmm. the sort of game where someone might go through with a certain build that has like some really cool synergies with like a certain talent or a certain ability pairing really well with a specific play style and then you learn like you find you find this really cool route through this game that is like an emergent thing that made sense to you and then you might talk to your friend in a podcast and they're like well actually i found that this weapon ended up being really really good for a completely different play style so yeah. well they yeah, did... obviously it's go ahead in the video they also say um their sort of their aim with the game is that if you don't want to think about all this stuff and you just want to jump in and play the game get to the end you can do that like you don't have to mess around with too much you can just play it like a like a character action game i guess uh but if you want to be the person who goes back and does all the end game stuff like there's loads of options for you and that okay it's all it's all fluff like until the game comes out i won't know like what these systems are like if there's any merit to it but it's good that that's the focus of no, nah, I'm with you. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to say. Like, well, so we we know what your intent is. Does it actually shine through in the in the product? I guess we'll see. Is this game still not dated? For some reason, I thought it was dated, but I'm going to say we just have it as winter. Uh, it is a PS5 launch game, I believe. We must have just never updated the database for it. Yeah. All right. We will. We will get that fixed. So, we're launching alongside the PlayStation Five, Godfall looks moderately interesting. And hopefully we'll be pleasantly surprised. All right. The last few topics on the podcast are just some little quick bits. I don't know if we'll dwell on these too much. Um, 
We did get confirmation that the PlayStation 5 release of Atelier Ryza 2 has been uh, canceled in Japan. So that game will only be a PS4 release with, you know, obviously, the backwards compatibility uh, in play. So it is what it is. Some people have really speculated some really kind of wild things about why that might be referring to like Sony censorship and stuff, even though Koei has said that the game will not be censored. Uh, so and just it's a PS4 game and also a Switch game, right? So it won't have well, the a, um... physical. This is where I get a little bit confused. The physical PS5 release is not is is canceled, but it's getting a digital PS5 release. Is that the same as an upgraded PS4 release? I know, like on Xbox, how it works is like the digital Xbox One and Xbox Series version are like the same SKU. Is that this, is also is that also the case on PS5? Like, is it going to be like a PS5 version? Just I don't know. Like, like how you delineate the wording the seems to suggest yes. They say that if you buy the PS4 version, you can upgrade to the PS5 version, but. It's like when they say upgrade, do they just literally mean you can now play it on PS5? Or do they mean like we've actually implemented some tweaks so the game runs better or higher resolution or whatever? I guess we won't really know until we can dip our fingers into the pudding. That's a very weird idiom, but I'm going with it. Uh, yeah, I did love that. <laughs> and, and see like uh, uh, exactly what the PS5 version is different from the PS4 version or if it's just compatible. But yep, no physical release in PS5 for Rise of 2. We also got a little bit of a quick trailer for Hyrule Warriors Age of Calamity, along with some new character art of some other characters that haven't been confirmed to be playable, but I think a lot of people are leaning towards the chance that they are. So we got some character art of uh, people like Robbie and Pura that were released um, recently, and then also a king, what's his name, Rome? So carrying like a big great sword, so people are using that to like suggest that he's playable, and a whole bunch of new screenshots. And I think the main takeaway here is like, man, they have nailed the art style of Breath of the Wild. Uh, I saw some people say on Twitter, I think, or maybe it was Reddit, where it's like, if you if you showed someone these screenshots in a vacuum and told them that this was Breath of the Wild 2, like, I believe you. So um, a whole bunch of new media. If you go to our new site for this, like the, the media box is just like several dozen new uh, screenshots and artwork for Age of Calamity. So that's another November release. I don't think even we even mentioned earlier, talking about the Deluge of Games, uh, November 20th. And then the last, uh, oh no, two more other things. Um, Immortals, Phoenix Rising, previously Gods and Monsters, the, the Zelda-like from uh, Ubisoft, does have a limited time Stadia demo. Now, does anyone here have Stadia and has tried this? Or What's a Stadia? A... <laughs> I got the ask from that was really into Stadia for a bit uh, and I tried it a bit and it was at least when I tried it it was like I mean yeah it's game streaming I've I've, I've tried streaming services before like the uh, xCloud app on like phone and whatnot and I like when I was reviewing like uh, Monster Hunter Iceborne I actually did quite a bit of it on like remote play on the PC app but uh yeah, it just didn't seem that much better than other services, so I haven't haven't really touched it since. Especially since, well, like if I wanted to play something like Remote Play, I mean, Steam Remote Play is an option nowadays. So, yeah. and so we're obviously planning on covering this game, and they did also reveal a new little short two minute story trailer, just kind of like going over the premise. Uh, but none of us have 
hands-on experience with this kind of Stadia exclusive demo. So another another little small tease about how the landscape is slowly shifting about having demos exclusive to these streaming services. I will say this though, um, having not played the demo but watched the trailer, uh, this is something I'm like mildly excited for. Like I, I've kind of given the benefit of the doubt, and I hope I'll, I'll enjoy. But the tone of the trailer, uh, it's just I I I like when a game has comedy, but it has to be funny. Like, <laughs> like if the hit, it like if a game is going to try and be funny, then that's fine, awesome, like more the merrier. But actually, be funny, and there's the story trailer is just like riffing on like epic movie trailers like uh and then here's the action shot and i was just like uh, like this seems really base level funny um and i kind of hoped that it would be like if i don't know if any of you have played assassin's creed odyssey but that is actually quite funny like that has quite a lot of humor in it and i kind of hope they do that but like you maybe just have a to hope bit. that it's like a marketing tact that ends up falling flat and it's not super representative of yeah. the game itself I gotta hope because when when they did the last Ubisoft Forward event, which again feels like years ago, it was like last month. Uh, they said, "Oh yeah, it's gonna have like a comedy focus." And I was like, "Yes, cool." Like, so, like a bit more character to it. And now I'm like, "Okay, go back because this is funny." <laughs> I do. In general, I just think, um, I'm surprised at how few Zelda likes there have been. That specific sort of third person semi action lock and key sort of gameplay where you get like a, a specific tool set, whether it's like hookshot and hammer or other stuff. Like they had Darksiders, you have Azuric, you have a few other things, but not a, not a, not a, it's not a huge like swath of games that are in that style, unlike Metroidvania's or Souls likes. So just the fact that it kind of says like yes, we are playing to that sort of game has me like inherently interested so uh this is releasing early december so later than some of the other games we brought up and this is a game that i might grab on like day one just to like really you know first of all to try to squeeze it in before uh game of the year talks just just in case it ends up being yeah. worthy of consideration that has happened before like last year um but yeah just i, I like zelda style games i like zelda lights so uh i'm inherently interested now hopefully i don't think all the humor is just super cringy and bad but we'll see and the last note we have on here is just there was a very quick uh youtube teaser about like 40 seconds about what's coming next for fallout 76 which i think i'm the only person here that's played that um fallout 76 uh steel dawn which introduces the brotherhood of steel which is kind of a very major very popular very iconic faction for the that game series so obviously they were going to dip their toes into that at some point. Uh, I am I hate this phrase, but I'm cautiously optimistic. Basically, I feel like having reviewed both the original release and Wastelanders, their big first post-game update, they're kind of on like a very, very steady but solid upward trend. It's not as quick or as you know drastic or as exciting as other games that have turned it around since the poor start, but it's kind of like a meteoric, is that the right word? Uh, very slow and steady rise where it's like maybe by the time this releases it'll be like from a solid okay serviceable game to like an actually good one so very very muted expectations but it'll be it'll be interesting to see if they're keep if they're if they can keep on that trend for just 
a fair bit longer, maybe they'll actually end up someplace uh, worth talking about. So I will keep, I, I guess I'll keep myself apprised about uh, when that ends up releasing. They didn't actually officially announce any sort of date for it. And that covers the topics that I had. Uh, some really cool discussion this week about lots of different like general topics as well as very specific games that they that those topics sprung off on. Uh, does anyone else anyone else have any like closing comments? Uh, um, I actually, yeah, James, take the floor. I think this is your week. <laughs> yeah. uh, this goes for every game out there, but if we ever publish a review that you guys disagree with, play the game first before you. Well, even don't even shit on us if we if we disagree with a game that you played and you liked. But for the love of all the Tolly, just play a game first before you start replying to like our reviews and try like trying to discredit them or whatnot. Like, well, at least I'll, I'll, I'll rephrase that. It's okay to reply to the review. Like, yeah. uh, even if you have a dissenting comment, make it, but substantiate it and don't target the author, especially if you haven't played the game. And then once you've played it, maybe revisit the review and say, like, I actually thought differently because of X, Y, Z, rather than, oh, you gave it a five, you should go play Halo or whatever. Also, uh, this is just a fundamental thing that I think that maybe people just don't realize. But guys, none of us want to give games bad reviews. Like, if it was up to me, I would be, I would love if every game that I reviewed was a 10 out of 10. That would be amazing. That would be great. Like, I don't know any reviewer that specifically wants a game that they're reviewing to be bad or for them not to enjoy it. It just doesn't happen. And there's really even no like way you can invent where that would happen. Like, what sort of system do you think is in play where that would happen genuinely? Yeah, try. try I'm okay. I'm the reviews editor for this website, meaning I do most of the editing and distribution and whatnot. Just try getting someone to review a game they don't want to play. Like, it is not <laughs> happening. It is not happening. Yeah. If you if you ever wonder why a game is absent from our review list, uh. I can't think of a good recent example. Let's just say like... Sort out online. Oh, there you go. And that's basically because the review was available, but no one was in, no one was interested in it. So we didn't have the bandwidth to cover it. Obviously, James reviewed Cold Steel 4 because he was interested in it, not because he was like, aha, rubbing my hands together. Here's my chance <laughs> <laughs> to really dunk, and dunk on this and show those guys. Like, no, that doesn't happen. But I do hope that the discussion we had on this podcast kind of explains where James is coming from and kind of, and obviously yeah, it would be, it'd be awesome to revisit with different opinions, but obviously it just requires the game to be released and give us 108 hours or so to play through it. Yes. All right. So unless anyone interrupts me, that covers us for the podcast. You can visit us on our website and re read the review front to back, uh, at rpgsite.net. We also have all the news coverage that we mentioned over the course of the cast. Um, you can go to our Twitter page at rpgsite or follow us on YouTube at rpgsite.net. Uh, we do have a Discord. If you go to our homepage and click on the link at the top, you can head into there to start discussing uh, Cold Steel and your opinions on it. Uh, and then, as always, we will be back next week with another edition of the cast as we head into the exciting November that we've all been waiting for. So until then, take care, and we'll see you next time. Bye, everyone. Later, folks.